Are you ready for this? If you got your Bibles, 2 Timothy chapter 2, and then we're going to jump back into our study, 2 Samuel chapter 13, and we're going to look at three what seem like transition verses where there is some incredible power attached to them. I quote this verse to you every now and again. Um, scripture tells us, all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, and training in righteousness. Every uh, part of scripture from the very first stroke of the pen in Genesis to the final punctuation in Revelation, all of scripture is a big neon sign pointing to Jesus. But here's the deal. The passage that we're going to look at today is a teaching and training in righteousness set of verses. We're going to look at it from the perspective of why has the Lord put this in scripture and what should we personally uh, take from it? What is he trying to steer us with this? And so just know, again, Christ is always the over arching theme and everything taught from scripture, uh, these three verses, um, I want to encourage you. Don't view this from a societal perspective. Don't view it from a, your neighbor perspective. I want you to look in the mirror on these verses uh, that we're about to go through today, and we're going to talk about how we handle the truth that's presented to us. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Uh, we start with this question today. Have you ever mishandled something before? You ever mishandled something before um, that can go on a whole bunch of different levels? We'll take it to an animal level today, all right? Have you ever mishandled an animal before? Uh, it can be a really tough situation. There's two types of people in this world, those that like snakes and those of us that are terrified of them, all right? How many of you raise your hand or terrified of snakes? We're going to get over that fear today. No, I'm just kidding. I was just kidding. Didn't have snakes back there. Not a snake handling church. I apologize. Not us. Uh, so just know uh, when it comes to snakes, all right, I am one. Don't like them, all right? And here's the thing. Whenever you see a snake, all right, um, there is one response that you should have. Run, all right? Just run in the opposite direction. Mishandling the snake, you actually can pick up a snake, but you have to grab it where? Next to the head, okay? Now, the head is the scariest part of the snake because it's the part that can bite you. But that's where you want to grab it because if you grab it by the tail, I mean, it can just run up and bite you, right? It coils up, can use those muscles that a snake has, and it can bite you. It's counterintuitive, right? Why would I grab the scariest part of the snake? And yet, that's what you have to do in order to handle it properly. So years ago, uh, my wife and I, we have a, we have a cat named Carl. Carl the cat. It's a true story. Uh, and uh, uh, when we were around cats kind of the first time uh, as a couple, uh, we had some friends that had a cat. They had, uh, this was before Autumn and I had any kiddos. We're around this little cat, and uh, uh, the uh, family that brings their young child, I think the son was uh, like maybe three years old, um, sees the cat and had never petted a cat before. And so they look at him, and uh, the couple then says to the owner of the cat, is your cat friendly? And they go, oh, yes, very friendly, so gentle, so sweet. And here's the deal. It was the truth, all right? That believe it or not, there are gentle cats out there, all right? So the kid then walks over to pet the cat and starts to at the, grab the cat like this. Not to pet the cat, but to grab the cat. So the parents stop, and they go, no, no, no. Make your palm flat. And they told this little three-year-old to pet the cat like this, right? Make your palm flat. Don't grab. Pet the cat. And you watch this little boy, kitty, right? Just petting that cat, kitty. I don't know why he had to say it when he petted it, but he had kitty, right? So he's petting the cat. Well, then after that, after petting the cat, then he starts to grab a little bit. And the parents go, no, no, no. Keep your palm flat. 
Just pet the kitty. Very gentle. Kitty pets the cat. Well, Autumn and I are sitting off to the side, and the parents go in the other room, and we're like, man, we, we know where this is going. You know what I mean? The kid's going to make a play at the cat. And because we didn't have any kids of our own, we thought, not our kids, not our problem. All right? And so there they are, the, kid, the cat and the kid. I'll never forget, kid comes over, and we watch him. He all of a sudden kitty and he grabs that cat like he's been trying to do since he got there to the house and he wraps his arms around the cat now here's the deal the cat is feeling then that its ribs are being crushed and all of a sudden the cat in a fight or flight instinct takes a swipe at the kid and claws the kid's arm then runs underneath the couch well the kid then starts to scream oh bad kitty bad kitty just over and over again and runs in the living runs out of the living room to his parents well the parents then come into the couple that own the cat and they come up and they go you said your cat was friendly and it was not and they just start going off. And Autumn and I, again, the bystanders, we were like, hey, um, not to go over the kid here, all right? But um, he was grabbing the cat. And they were like, no, we taught him to pet the cat. We were like, yeah, we know. But we watched. And the kid grabbed the cat, mishandled the cat. Now, here's the picture. The cat was friendly. But in a fight or flight, it was mishandled. And it caused the whole situation to blow up. The cat was hurt. The kid was hurt. And then there was the, there was the uh, a discussion that took place between the two, the, uh, the couple and uh, the, two, the two couples that were in the room. The picture is just to say this. When we mishandle things, there are consequences that take place in those circumstances that did not have to be if we could just do it the right way. Now, just for the record, it says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Here's what it says. In fact, if any of you did Awanas growing up as kids, you're going to remember this verse. You ready? Do your best to present yourself to God as one approved. I don't one approved. A workman who does not need to be what? Ashamed and who correctly handles the word of the truth. Circle, underline, and highlight correctly handles and that word ashamed. What we have in this verse is when it comes to the word of truth, when it comes to truth, when we correctly handle it, it's a very good situation. But when we mishandle the truth of Jesus Christ, or really just truth in general, it is a clear path to shame. In fact, if you want to write that down, you can. Mishandling the truth is a clear path to shame. Our goal is to do our very best to present ourselves to the Lord as one approved, someone doing the work for him and for his name, where we don't have to be ashamed, where we correctly handle the word of the truth. Anybody ever given you truth before? I mean, I'm telling you, it's heavy truth. A little insight into who I am. I'm the type of person, because of the way ministry works, um, I'm a one-stop shop for a whole lot of information uh, in D.C., and Part of my gifting, I've got the gift of mercy, and part of my gifting is when you share something you've been through with me, I can lock it up like a safe, I can put it away, and then the mercy, I beg God on your behalf, I pray for you like crazy, but I also, there's no judgment that comes on this side either. It's a, it's a gift that God has given me, something I've worked on over the years, but a true gift God has given me. Can I tell you when I struggle? When somebody tells me something really good, I really struggle to keep that a secret. So badly that like when my wife and I get presents for the kids, 
I'll tell her what I want to get them, and then I don't have her tell me she's gotten them because I want to tell. If there's good news, several of you, we got 15 uh, couples that are pregnant right now here in the church. And you know what you do? You tell your parents, and then you tell your pastor, and I have to hold that information in until you post it on Facebook. And I'm telling you, I just get so excited. I can hardly hold it together. Really sad story. A drummer, uh, our drummer, uh, Alan Clack, they, uh, their son Jude, when he was eight, this is back when we were over at the Marriott Hotel for church. Um, they had gotten Jude the best birthday present ever for an eight-year-old. Alan had found a website where you could make an action figure of yourself. And so they made Jude an action figure of himself, the superhero action figure, and they were going to give it to him on his birthday. Well, I'm just so excited. Like, Jude's going to love that. He's going to freak out and think that's so awesome. Well, sure enough, every time I see him, like, I'm just, that's all I can think about. And so finally, the day comes up and Jude's birthday is on a Sunday. And so he shows up at church and we hear it's his birthday and I go, oh my goodness, I've been holding this back all this time. How's the action figure? And Alan's like, quit it, man, quit it. And I'm like, what is it? And he goes, we're giving it to him tonight. You ruined his birthday. All right. Again, sadly, I mishandled the truth. And when I see, when I see him around Jude's birthday, they always say, hey, do you remember that time you ruined Jude's birthday? Yep, I remember. All right. Mishandling the truth is a clear path to shame. Now, listen, it's one thing when that truth is an action figure or that somebody's having a baby that somebody's getting a good Christmas present, okay? It's another thing when someone comes up and they confess something so stinking heavy that you feel the weight of the struggle that they are navigating and you just don't know what to do with it. We're going to talk today about the passage of Scripture. Remember, a few weeks ago, we've been going through 2 Samuel and we got to the passage where David's son Amnon sexually assaults his sister Tamar, his half-sister Tamar, David's daughter. And then we get to the three little verses that we're going to look at today for how the house of David navigates this information. I want to encourage you. This is not a look at society passage for us today. This is not a look at your community passage. This is a look in the mirror message for you today. Flip with me, if you will, 2 Samuel chapter 13. We're going to start in verse 20. And our big million-dollar question is, how does David's house mishandle hard truth? How does David's house mishandle hard truth? Again, remember, all Scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching and training in righteousness. This is a teaching and training in righteousness passage for us today. Three little verses with so much power behind them. You ready? How does David's house mishandle hard truth? So we have that situation again. Uh, Tamar has just run out, gone through her awful day, and now we get to verse 20. It says, so her brother Absalom said to her, has that Amnon, your brother, been with you? Look at this. Be quiet now, my sister. Be quiet now, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. Stop right there for just a minute. What Absalom does here is the absolute worst thing that you can say to a victim of abuse, to a victim of assault, to a victim of struggle. He says, be quiet and get over it. Don't miss this. If someone ever trusts you with deep, heavy information where you are bearing that burden with them, listen, be quiet and get over it. It's the worst thing you can say. Now, for those of you who have endured a form of abuse, when they say that to you, it's terrible advice 
and they mean well, but it is not advice that you should take. When we do, the next part of the verse is what happens. Look at this. So it says again, her brother Absalom says, be quiet, my sister. He's your brother. Don't take this thing to heart. It says, and Tamar lived under her brother Absalom's, lived, lived in her brother Absalom's house, a desolate woman. Underline a desolate woman. This is so interesting because the desolation starts with the abuse, but the desolation is furthered by be quiet and get over it. That causes a stunting of the victim where then she is defined by this moment Rather than it being a defining characteristic, it becomes the defining characteristic. So if you're taking notes, write this down. How does David's house mishandle hard truth? Number one, the victim is told to be quiet and to get over it. The victim is told to be quiet and get over it. If you are a person and someone shares that burden with you, do not tell them those words. And then if you are a person who has gone through that, if you are someone who is a victim like I myself am, if you are someone who has gone through that, be quiet and it was not good advice for you. We've got to work through it. If you want to take notes, you can write this down. A victim's development is stunted when they're told to bury their trauma. A victim's development is stunted when they are told to bury their trauma. Desolation comes from the act, but also from the cover-up. Um, crazy little story for my family. Um, we, uh, a couple weeks ago... When we got all the rain, um, my wife and I just got a new-to-us house. It's an older house, but a new-to-us house uh, that has a basement. And uh, we got the house, bought the house on January the 18th. And uh, this is crazy, just so you'll know the way the interest rate stuff has gone. Um, we got in at 2.5% interest. Can you believe that? Uh, that was in just to show you how much things have changed in, in just a couple of months. Uh, but we get in at this house. We love it. It's a wonderful spot. But two weeks ago... In the basement, all of a sudden, whoop, we sprung a leak. And then all of a sudden, through the foundation, there's just this one little spot of water that's coming through. That's every nightmare when you buy an older home. And so we called the foundation expert to come in. Foundation expert checked it out and said, uh, we were like, did they sell us a bad house? They go, no, it's a great house. They said, sadly, it was just the time for this to happen. Didn't even look like there had been a leak previously. And so it just happened to happen at this point. And so we looked over at them and said, so what do we need to do? We got this leak. What do we need to do? And he said, well, first of all, our bid is $13,500, okay? It's a lot of stinking money. He said, it's going to be very expensive to fix this thing, but we get this problem fixed. You're not going to have any other problems. Well, we're going through that, and so then it's spring break week, and to this point, we've just been putting towels on the floor and sopping up all the water as it comes in. So we look at this, this contractor and said, so uh, as far as what we're doing right now, is it good? He goes, yeah. He goes, it's good that you're doing it this way. Uh, but he said, you're going to have to keep doing this. And we said, well, we, it's spring break. We've been promising the kids that we would take them out of town. And we said, can we still do that with this problem? And he comes back and here were his exact words. He goes, I wouldn't go far. That's what he said. I wouldn't go far. And we said, what do you mean? He said, it's going to take us two months to get to it. He goes, we're backed up for permits. He says, or two, two weeks, two months. It's going to take us two months to get to it. He said, your deal is not bad enough for us to call it an emergency. But he said, if you don't keep sopping up the water, it's going to cause you a whole bunch of problems later. So here's the deal. We are now shackled to the house, 
And we can't leave further than about six hours at a time so that we can make sure we sop up that water. And every time the weather report comes out, I mean, we are watching it just like, again, just, just like a vulture. Watch it. Trying to figure out what it is that's happening because we don't want that foundation to hurt. So if you came over and visited my house, none of you would have, other than after me telling you this, none of you would have any inkling that that was going on. But it's at the forefront for my wife and I every single day when we look at the weather report. We are shackled to this thing. It's very, very concerning, and it's very, very expensive. When it comes to abuse, when it comes to trauma that you bury, others come to the house and they don't know what's going on. But you are mindful of it all the time. It's every time you check email. It's every time you check the weather report. It's every time you think about leaving and going any further. So what does it do? It stunts you. It keeps you so close to home and so close to one spot. So what in the world are we supposed to do? How are we supposed to progress? Absalom looks at his sister and goes, I'm so angry, I can hardly see straight. I'm so frustrated. Just don't talk about it anymore. Just, just get over it. I mean, this is awful. I will deal with this my own way. You just get over it. And he doesn't realize it. But he has furthered her becoming a desolate woman. He has furthered her becoming a desolate individual. So what should we do? What should we say? Jesus says it perfectly. Save your spot there in 2 Samuel. And now flip over to Matthew chapter 11. And we're going to read verses 28 through 30. Some of the most famous verses in all of scripture. Matthew 11 verses 28 through 30. Here's what Jesus says. He says, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened. That word burdened means weighed down, shackled, sin-sapped. Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. Some translations say heavy laden. And I will give you rest. Now watch this. Take my yoke upon you. Underline that word yoke. And learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart. And you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke, there's that word again, underline yoke, is easy, and my burden is light. It's so interesting because Jesus says, come to me and bring that heavy baggage with you, the stuff that others may have told you to bury and to pretend like it's not there. He says, bring me your baggage and take on my yoke. Notice this. He doesn't say, bring me your baggage and then don't worry about it. He says, put on my yoke. Do you remember what a yoke was? A yoke is what you put on to oxen so that they plow field in unison. The yoke was what you put on to a horse that pulled a chariot. He uses a work verb. He says, come to me and let's do the work of getting healthy. Isn't that a good word for us today? He says, don't bury it. Don't hide from it. Come to me and let's do the work so that you can get better. And then I love it. He says, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Can I tell you why else that's powerful? Because he's not saying that it will be easy. He's saying my yoke is a whole lot better than the way you're trying to do it right now. Isn't that interesting? The way that I have for you is still going to be difficult, but it's a whole lot easier than you trying to do this on your own. Some of you have become desolate men and desolate women. You have gone through a deeply defining day in your life that you didn't choose, that was forced upon you. But listen to me. 
It can be a day and not the day. Amen? It can be a day and not the day. But you got to go to Jesus and you got to do the work to get better, to let him heal you, and you got to do the work to get healthy once again. It begs the question, is it time you left the desolate darkness to come under the yoke of Jesus? Is it time you left the desolate darkness to come under the yoke of Jesus? If someone has the courage to confess to you something that they are carrying, something unthinkable, don't tell them be quiet and get over it. Tell them let's go to Jesus and let's do the work to get, to get you healthy again. And that's not all that happens. Look at what happens next. Now flip over 2 Samuel and let's look at chapter 13, verse 21. We've gone through darkness in David's life before. Uh, 2 Samuel 13, 21 is a really dark verse when it comes to David. You ready for this? It says, verse 21, it says, When King David heard all of this, he was furious. Period. End of statement, end of thought, end of action. Stop right there for just a minute. You know why this verse is so dark? Because David hears the story that his son has sexually assaulted his daughter and he's heard that Absalom, the other son who represents another portion of the family, is completely furious about this, that he has to be so angry about this. So David is stirred by the emotion, but doesn't do a dadgum thing about it. He's furious. He's frustrated. And by the way, this is the one that Scripture calls the man after God's own heart. He's furious. He's stirred. But he doesn't do anything. If you're taking notes... Number two, how does the house of David mishandle hard truth? Number one, the victim's told to be quiet and get over it. And number two, those in authority are stirred, but do nothing. Those in authority are stirred, but do nothing. David can feel in his gut he's supposed to do something about this. And yet, for whatever reason, he chooses to sink back. It may be because Amnon is his oldest son. It may be because he's still reeling from what's taking place with Bathsheba and the loss of his child. It may be because of what's going on in the country, but for whatever reason, he can't step up and be the leader. He is the one who is supposed to defend her from a government level and the one who's supposed to defend her as her father. And instead, he's stirred, but he does nothing. If you're taking notes, write this down. You ready? There are brutal repercussions when the spirit speaks loudly and a disciple does nothing. There are brutal repercussions when the Spirit speaks loudly and the disciple does nothing. I want to read you a set of verses. Save your spot in 2 Samuel. But I want to read you Psalm chapter 101, verses 1 through 8. Psalm 101 is so interesting because these are David's words. Scholars believe that these words could have been written one or two times. That it either was written when Saul passed away and David has gotten the kingship. Some scholars believe Psalm 101 is David's pledge to the people of Israel at the inauguration when he's inaugurated king. When you read these words, they are so powerful. They are so beautiful. It's exactly what you hope to hear a godly leader say. And yet, when you read it in light of 2 Samuel 13, 21, man, it's just difficult. He knew the truth. He just struggled to walk it. Here's what it says, Psalm 101. Picture this, at the inauguration or him finding out that he's king after Saul passes away. He says, I will sing of your love and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing your praise. I will be careful to lead a blameless life. 
When will you come to me? I will walk in my house with a blameless heart. I will set before my eyes no vile thing. The deeds of faithless men I hate, they will not cling to me. Men of perverse heart shall be far from me. I will have nothing to do with evil. Whoever slanders his neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, I will not endure him. My eyes will be on the faithful in the land, that they may dwell with me. He whose walk is blameless will minister to me. Now look at verse 7. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. No one who speaks falsely will stand in my presence. Every morning I will put to silence all the wicked in the land. I will cut off every evildoer from the city of the Lord. Excellent. Excellent promises, excellent character from David. It's why it's in Scripture. But in light of 2 Samuel 13, 21, yikes. Why couldn't he stand up to it? We don't know. But we know it is harder in leadership to stand up to your immediate family, isn't it? He struggles here. He doesn't do it. And it allows Tamar to remain in desolation. It begs the question... Are you allowing a dangerous infection to go untreated? Are you allowing a dangerous infection to go untreated? I told you this is a look in the mirror passage. For some of you, you have been stirred in your spirit by a wrong that has been committed to someone else, and you are actually in a position of authority where you can do something about it. Listen to me. If the spirit stirs, Don't just sit furious. Do something about it. Remember we said if you can do something, you should do something. And you can't do everything, but you can do something. I want to encourage you. If the spirit is stirred, not on a societal level, we're talking personally. If there's something you can do, then you probably should figure out a way to do it. David causes incredible carnage. At the end of the day, Tamar is desolate. Amnon ends up dead. And then Absalom's going to end up dead as well. 2 Samuel 13, 21 is the pivot point verse where David could have done something about it. He could have stopped the hemorrhaging. He was furious. He was stirred. But he didn't do anything. That cannot be us. Amen? That cannot be us. And then we get our last verse. Flip with me, if you will. 2 Samuel chapter 13, verse 22. Look at what happens next. It says, David's furious. He doesn't do anything about it, but he's furious. And so verse 22, it says, So Absalom, this is Tamar's brother, never said a word to Amnon. Underline, never said a word to Amnon. Either good or bad. But he hated Amnon because he had disgraced his sister Tamar. Underline, he hated Amnon. Now, it's so interesting to me. Because Absalom is about to plot and carry out the murder of Amnon to get revenge for what had been done to his sister. But it says he doesn't say a word to him, good or bad, up until that day he takes his life. But he just hated him. Trauma leaves a void. And not just trauma done to others, but trauma, or not just trauma done to you, but trauma done to others where we carry that burden for them. I mean, I'm telling you, I've had things that have happened in my life that have been extremely heavy. But man, when my wife or my kids 
or my brother or my sister or my mom or my dad when he was still living, when things happened to them, I'm telling you, you think you know rage? When somebody hurts someone you deeply love, there is a void of rage that comes from that trauma. Trauma causes ripple effects that go so far out. Now listen to me. Hate is a very powerful thing that we self-medicate that void with. And there is no better example of that than the last two years. You can connect with hate on any level, anytime you want. And through the power of social media and the internet, I'm telling you, you can connect with people that feel exactly the same hatred that you feel any time of day or night. And so here's what we do. We self-medicate with that hatred. We're tempted to self-medicate with that hatred. So how does David's house mishandle the truth? Number one, the victim's told to be quiet and get over it. Number two, those in authority are stirred but do nothing. And number three, the victim's supporters plot revenge. The victim's supporters plot revenge. That hatred, sneeps, that hatred seeps in and all of a sudden creates this false reality, this false narrative that what they're doing is something that's just. Just for the record, the definition of justice is fairness or moral rightness. The definition of revenge is wronging someone for a wrong suffered at their hands. If you're taking notes, write this down. Are you ready? Revenge is not justice, all right? Revenge is not justice. Sometimes they can get used interchangeably, but you got to know the difference between the two. For example, everybody loves Batman, right? If you saw the new Batman movie, one of his big lines he says over and over again is, I am vengeance, right? I am vengeance. I am getting even, right? That's what he's all about. Can I tell you why at the end of the day, Batman, when it turns to Justice League, there's a reason that Batman is so much fun to read about. Because Batman is that embodiment of hatred, and he's doing the things that you feel like you wish you could do in certain circumstances to people that have hurt you or people that have hurt someone that you love, right? He's apart from the law. He's a vigilante. He's doing what he wants to do. But at the end of the day, Batman has to go by the wayside so that the Justice League can come about. There's your comic book example for the day, all right? In this circumstance, what happens with Absalom is he plots vengeance and creates this alternate reality that should not exist. Vengeance, vengeance is something that you are too close to, and you cannot do it on your own. You cannot, you cannot be just on your own. One little crazy story. Um, part of preaching is you guys know a whole lot about me, and then I get to know you over time when we meet, but you have to hear all my crazy stories. And so um, sometimes what you have that can happen is a congregant can feel like they really, really know you as the preacher, and you're still just in the process of getting to know them. And every now and again, it turns into a mania. And so uh, my dad preached very similar to the way I do, lots of personal stories and just insight that way. And uh, one day... Uh, we had a woman who was quite a bit older than my parents, um, was by herself, and my grandmother invited her to come uh, to uh, celebrate Christmas with us. And so it was just this beautiful experience. She's wonderful, didn't say a whole lot, but just kind of sat off to the side uh, during our family gathering. And uh, I was a freshman at OSU that year, and I remember I go back to school, and while I'm at school, I was at class. I come back to the house, come back to the apartment, and when I get there, there's a message on my answer machine. We had answering machines back in the day. All right. Push the play button, and this woman says, Zach, 
Your father and I are so excited. We're about to get married. It's this woman. We're about to get married, and we're going to fly you home to be the best man at the wedding. I'll pick you up from the airport. Now, the problem was my dad was married to my mom, all right, <laughs> and had no idea any of this was going on. And so, sure enough, I call my dad, and I go, Dad, I got this weird phone call. I explain it to him, and he goes, Son, he goes, we're together. He said, we're getting your mom out of town. He said, we're filing a restraining order. He said, it looks like she's created this false reality that we are having this relationship. And so uh, it was just scary. Some of you have been through stuff like that. It was scary. And um, we got my mom out of town, um, got this woman some help, got the restraining order in place. Um, And then the creepiest moment Um, We had had a video camera at Christmas, and we had videoed just the family being together. And we went back and watched that video with completely different eyes. All of a sudden, we see in the background, this woman was quiet, but you see her leaning over and closing her eyes and living in that fantasy, living in that fantasy world, just being there at the family gathering. Now listen to me. I tell you that story just to say this. Hate is a false reality. It's this bubble and you are not well. Hate is a powerful God to serve. It's a powerful narcotic. And I'm telling you, you can become so addicted to that hate that all of a sudden, every source you read online, every person that you meet with, every conversation you have, that hate is prevalent and evident. And I'm telling you, you are creating that false world. But the truth is, you need to come back to reality. Amen? Hatred is a wicked, wicked drug. And revenge Revenge is not justice. Do you know who understands that revenge is not justice? It's God himself. Look with me, if you will, at Romans chapter 12, verses 17 through 19. This is the same Romans chapter 12, by the way, that starts off, do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what the Lord's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. That powerful verse, Romans chapter 12, verse 2, right on the heels of that verse, that we not get trapped in that that bubble of hatred, that bubble of anger, that bubble of of a false reality. After that, we get the powerful verses, Romans 12, 17 through 19. It says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what's right in the eyes of everybody. If it's possible, as far as it depends on you, live with everyone. Now, verse 19, do not take revenge, my friends. But leave room for God's wrath, for it's also written, it is mine to avenge, I will repay, says the Lord. Stop right there for just a minute. That's not God saying, just be quiet and get over it. It's the opposite. It's the Lord looking at us and saying, when someone has wronged you, hurt you so deeply that there's a massive void in your spirit and you're tempted to put the narcotic of hatred in that void. God says, vengeance belongs to me. Halt the evil. Don't be the one who plots and plans wickedness to start another void in someone else's life. Trust me with vengeance, and I will take care of it. He doesn't say, don't worry about it. It's no big deal. He said, vengeance is mine. I'm the one who can view it with justice. When we don't do that, we create a false reality. It begs the question, do you self-medicate your hurt with the drug of hate? You self-medicate your hurt with the drug of hate. 
whether you were the one who the trauma was done to or you were the one helping bear the load of trauma in someone's life that you deeply love. It is never okay to self-medicate hurt with the drug of hate. Last little story. I've given you this example a couple different times. It just fits so well these last couple months. I watched a wonderful movie, great book called The Count of Monte Cristo. I mean, it is the quintessential revenge story. And do you remember in this little, in the little movie version, Edmond, the Count, he has this moment, Jim Caviezel playing the character, and you have this moment where the character has broken out of prison. He's amassed this great treasure. He's gotten back to where he's with the girl again, finds out he has a son, but he's just been filled with this desire to take revenge on the friend that the one he thought was his friend that took everything from him. And finally, it culminates in the scene. Jim Caviezel does such a good job. It culminates in the scene where he looks and he just goes, and she looks at him and goes, Edmond, why can't you just move forward? Why can't we just progress? And he goes, I mean, again, she's like, you have a son. You have me. You have money. You don't live at the prison anymore. You're not wrongfully accused and, and put away any longer. Why can't you just leave it behind? And you remember he goes, don't deny me my hate. Don't deny me my hate. It's all I have. It sounds so ridiculous. He's got everything that you could want in this life. But man, brothers and sisters, hate is that addictive. It's that addictive. It's filled the void for so long. It's the narcotic that you've gone to on your darkest of days. And you have withdrawals at the, th- withdrawals at the thought of it not being there anymore. This is not be quiet and get over it. This is me telling you stop medicating. Stop self-medicating with hate. It is a highly addictive, wicked drug that only leaves more destruction in its wake. Amen? Leave it behind. Stop self-medicating with hate. These are hard passages to preach. But I truly believe it's important. All scriptures God breathed and useful for teaching and training in righteousness. Look in the mirror today. Is the Holy Spirit stirring your heart? Is there something you need to do with this information? This may be the first step towards healing for you or for someone that you so deeply love. We've got to say yes to what the Lord is saying to us. Let's bow our heads for prayer.